0: This podcast is supported by Apollo Global Management. Ensuring a brighter, bolder future means investing in tomorrow, today. That's why Apollo is financing solutions to some of the world's most complex challenges. Learn more at Apollo.com.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to At Barron's. I'm Andy Serwer, and welcome to our guest, economist Glenn Hubbard. Glenn, so nice to see you. Likewise. So let's just start out and talk about the economy. Uh, and I guess I'm curious as to how you see the current rate cycle playing out. Have you been surprised at how fast rates went up, the Fed's response, and where do you think we are with that?
2: Well, it's a great question, Andy. I am not surprised at how fast the Fed uh, had to respond because it really needed to. The Fed was late in getting into the hiking cycle, but once it got in, it, it moved pace. I'm not as optimistic as markets that rates are on their way down uh, anytime soon because I'm assuming that the Fed means what it says, a 2% inflation target in the near future. If that statement's accurate, rates are going to have to remain high for a while. So I I think we, if not a new order of the ages, it's a new order for at least next year uh, to get used to it.
1: Yeah, I want to ask you about next year. But you're talking about higher longer, which seems to be somewhat of a consensus. If that's a consensus, then why is there this disconnect with the stock market?
2: Well, it's interesting. I think a couple of things. One is there's optimism that the decline in inflation that we've seen recently, like the most recent inflation print, uh, will make the Fed suddenly change course. I don't think that's true. Even with that decline in inflation, we're still in the mid-threes. It's a long, long way away from two. The closer you get to two, the harder it gets. And so as long as you believe two, that's too optimistic. The other thing the market could be saying to itself is, uh, I think there's more weakness in the economy than the Fed might think at the moment, and hence rates will fall. But that would be inconsistent with what the stock market is saying. So I, I don't really know why market participants feel the way they do.
1: Right, I mean, it's always a puzzle, isn't it? So you mentioned next year, 2024. I'm wondering what your outlook is for the economy, for business, what do you think?
2: Well, for the economy, uh, as I say, I do think we're in a cycle where rates are still going to be high. Uh, there's still a lot of underlying strength in the economy. And what I'm about to say, I have to say humbly, because I've been wrong so far, but I still think a recession is coming. And the reason is for rates to be at this level, for the monetary tightening to have happened, this weakness that we're starting to see in pockets of the job market, I do think we're still likely to see a recession uh, over the next year or so. I don't think a very significant one, but I think it will be there. To those who say it can't happen, um, one of my teachers, Rudy Dornbusch, always had a saying that, you know, he was speaking of a crisis, but he said a crisis always takes a long time to start, but then it happens very fast. Uh, and that's the way the job market tends to work when it uh, collapses, so I, I'm a little more worried there. What I'm more worried about for 2024 was politics. If every business leader I speak to, number one, two, or three on his or her list is the political dysfunction and what it means for their business. Not just geopolitics, but domestic politics here in the United States. Uh, Obviously that's gonna heat up in 2024 and I think poses a major challenge for business leaders.
1: But can't we have a soft landing?
2: Sure we can. It's hard. In fact, I can count on fewer than the fingers of my hand here, how many we've had in the post-war period, but it is possible. And it's possible for the Fed to quite credibly claim right now they're headed toward that. I mean, with the inflation decline and so on. That said, remember a soft landing is still a landing. It is still not gonna be where we were and soft landings still portend some more pain ahead. So I don't think it's a free launch.
1: You mentioned the political realm And it's curious, perhaps, the economy is doing pretty well, and yet people have a very low approval rating when it comes to President Biden's handling the economy. Why is that, and what would you advise President Biden to do about that?
2: Well, it's interesting. The administration seems to think it's a communications problem, and if they talked about it better or in a more cogent way, the public would change. With respect, I don't think that's it. I think for most average Americans, the inflation pop, which is clearly not all President Biden's fault, but that inflation pop happened in large part on his watch. And that has affected real wages. It has affected the purchasing power of uh, almost every American. And so I don't think people feel good about that. And I think when the president used things like the Inflation Reduction Act, which had nothing to do with inflation, it makes people think maybe the administration's not focused. So I, I don't blame the public for their views.
1: But that's water under the bridge. I mean, you're saying perhaps the stimulus contributed to the labeling, all that. I don't disagree necessarily, but what do you do about it? You worked in the White House. So what would you tell a president how to fix it?
2: Well, if to fix it, I think you would need a different set of policies than this president would like to have. Uh, Remember, this president largely continued what I would call the worst of President Trump's policies. Mm -hmm. Uh, in protectionism, in economic intervention. So I, I don't think we're likely to see a pivot from President Biden.
1: And so then you would therefore do what, Glenn?
2: Well, I would say that if President Biden were serious about a better economic story, he should focus on opportunity. So let me give you examples. President Biden had talked a lot about free community college. How about a big block grant for community colleges that actually gave them resources to train many, many more Americans? How about new legislation that would shore up work with the earned income credit? And I'm saying things that I think would appeal Mm -hmm. to the center left where the president sits. I think there are things he could do to focus on opportunity. It's just he doesn't seem to want to go there.
1: I want to go back to rates a little bit, Glenn, and ask you about inflation in particular. Do you think that the Fed has won the war on inflation at this point?
2: No. Uh, First of all, I think where the Fed has made progress is in regaining its own credibility, which was in real harm's way at the beginning of this cycle, so plus points for that. But I don't think the Fed completely has its arms uh, around inflation, in part because for too long it spoke about transitory inflation, which I always assumed they meant it would just go away on its own, which I never saw. Uh, They paid too little attention to the demand side meaning fiscal policy and monetary policy. So I don't think the Fed's won the war, but I do think it has made a lot of progress in reclaiming its own turf.
1: As far as investors go, what do you think the biggest opportunities are out there for them in 2024?
2: What's quite interesting, I think that um, AI is very fascinating for me and not in the obvious way of go out and buy an AI company. I mean, thinking ahead to where you think AI is going to transform business and look for the productivity gains there. So I can imagine in healthcare systems and many aspects of financial services, uh, even in manufacturing. And you know, if you take companies like Caterpillar or Deer, are those equipment companies or are they smart software companies? If you look at where the money is made in the products, it's largely the latter. So I, I think thinking through Where technology will affect is the key.
1: So those companies are going to best use AI then? Correct,
2: correct. I mean, I'm sure there will be companies that succeed in developing AI. I'm not nearly smart enough to tell you which ones are those. But I think just thinking through the implications of AI, there's gold
1: there. Shifting gears, you recently wrote a book called The Wall and the Bridge. What is that all about?
2: What's interesting, you know, apropos of AI, AI... Uh, which boomed again after I wrote the book. But AI is an example of something that could really raise growth substantially through productivity in this case, but it's highly disruptive. And one of the dirty little secrets I begin the book with is while economists celebrate economic growth for real reasons, it's, it's our future, it's our living standards. At the same time, I'm not aware of any model or real world of growth that doesn't have a lot of disruption. The political response to disruption has two flavors, walls and bridges. One is a wall, meaning I, the politician, promise to take away the pain from the disruption by delaying it. No trade, no foreigners, I'll slow down the technology. Another political mechanism is a bridge. Let me help you prepare for that new world. You as an individual, you as a group, you as a community that had been left behind. Unfortunately for our political process, walls are a lot easier to say and to explain to people than bridges. But if we have hope of capturing the gains of technologies like AI, we need to get serious about bridges.
1: Well, there's a lot of places to go with that. It sort of speaks, well, in one sense, to a new form of globalization, doesn't it? Because globalization Completely. is not dead, but it's changing, right?
2: Completely. I mean, if you look at... Um, The pattern of change since the early 1970s, I would say there are two tectonic forces that have changed most Americans' lives. The bigger one is what politicians talk about less. It's really technological change. Even the disruption of the steel industry had much more to do with technology than it did with trade. The second, though, is globalization, which is very, very important. Both of those are changing. Technology has shifted into artificial intelligence and robotics, And at the same time, the trade discussion is shifting more into regional blocks and what's onshore and what's not. I still think we're going to be talking a lot about what the gains from globalization and technological change are. And my concern there is not about science, and it's not about economics. It's, again, back to politics. Will we allow the gains to happen?
1: Do both Republicans and Democrats employ bridges and walls?
2: I would say at the moment more Walls and Bridges, mm-hmm. but they've both been there. For example, the Trade Adjustment Assistance Program came about in President Kennedy's 1962 trade legislation. The problem was it wasn't very ambitious. And some Republican leaders, Paul Ryan, for example, when he was Speaker of the House, championed supports for work and, and opportunities. So both parties have have made steps. Yet, if you were to look at the rhetoric in the present presidential campaign, it's much more centered on walls, be they physical walls or metaphorical walls.
0: This podcast is supported by Apollo Global Management. As one of the world's largest alternative asset managers, Apollo is generating investment-grade credit, providing greater access to more resilient and diverse pools of capital, and helping to fill gaps in America's financial ecosystem. Learn more at apollo.com slash private credit.
1: You were the dean of the Columbia University Business School for some 15 years. What do business schools do well, and where are they lacking?
2: Well, I'd say business schools, and by that I'm going to talk about the handful of top business schools. I would say that any one of those business schools has the privilege of working with the smartest young people on the planet, the best faculty on the planet, and they're in world-class universities. Each of those places has done well in generating research that has big impact in the real world. Uh, I always said for Columbia, we ought to be, and I think we are, the premier place of bridging theory and practice, and that's what a really good business school ought to do. You know, if you ask yourself, Why did the capital asset pricing model come out of business schools? Why did the field of strategy come out of business schools? Most of the people who developed these things had disciplinary degrees in arts and sciences, Mm -hmm. as do I, but there was something about the business school environment. So I think they, they do that. Business schools also do a really good job at plugging people into the rest of the university and into the real world a whole lot better than any other part of the university.
1: Are you concerned, Glenn, about what's going on at universities today in terms of free speech, which can be a concern either from the left or from the right?
2: Very much. Uh, You know, I teach Columbia. I think I say the obvious that we've had a lot of demonstrations uh, in the past weeks and uh, a lot of concern about free speech. To me, universities ought to be a place of great tolerance. Uh, When we speak of diversity in the university, surely the most important diversity component of all is about ideas. That said, universities shouldn't be a place for hate speech. Free speech is not the same as hate speech. And I think where university leaders have to struggle but work at it is figuring out what's legitimate discourse for disagreement and what's pure hate speech.
1: Are Ivy League degrees still worth the money, graduate or undergraduate? They are,
2: but honestly, they are not by any means the road, only road to a great job or to wealth or to personal satisfaction. Uh, I I think Ivy League schools have succeeded in part because, again, great networks. There are great young people, great alumni network, great faculty network, typically well-resourced places. That said, there are a lot of great universities uh, around the country, so I don't think it really matters that much.
1: You're a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and have been described as a supply side economist. I wonder if that's the case, A. And B, has your thinking on tax cuts evolved over the years?
2: Great question. To me, I always thought of supply side a little differently than when it's used in the political process. I just mean that there's slope, there there there's incentive effects. So if a business person is making an investment decision, You and I are deciding whether to start a business or how much we want to work, incentives matter. That's all I mean by supply side. My views on tax cuts have changed a lot, uh, in part because the overall budget constraints facing the country have changed a lot. I don't think any politician can be realistic going in front of the American people and saying we need a massive tax cut at a time when we're running a $2 trillion budget deficit. We do need tax reform and I would say that tax reform probably ought to raise, not lower revenue, but try to improve incentives at the same time. If you think about the nation's fiscal problem, it's largely a spending problem, but it doesn't mean that taxes won't or can't play part of the answer.
1: Interesting, but you're not one of these people, like a laugher who just says, for instance, we should just keep cutting and cutting and cutting.
2: No, no, because yeah. that, that would mean that, you know, why not go to zero, why, right. why, why do we need any taxes at all.
1: Right. I mentioned you were in the White House uh, earlier in your career. You worked for President George W. Bush, chair of his Council of Economic Advisors. Jared Bernstein has that job today. What was it like working for W, and how do you think it's different from the job today?
2: Well, it's a great uh, question, Andy. I, I think that any CEA chair only has one client. That's the president. So it really depends on what the president wants to do and what the president's relationship is with the CEA chair. For me, it was very interesting because President Bush did have a lot of economic issues on his mind. Uh, I don't mean by that he was in love with economics. Few presidents are, (laughs) but he cared a lot about international finance issues. We had the uh, corporate accounting scandals at the time, obviously the fallout from 9-11. So I think economics was at the forefront. So it was really exciting. I think for Jared, Economics uh, similarly plays a role. President Biden has a lot of interest, albeit in different kinds of policies, but in the domestic economy uh, and in the global economy. So I think CEA, the Council of Economic Advisors, has always punched above its weight. You know, it's very small. It's like 30, 35 people, and yet highly influential because of the connection to the president and the networking in the government.
1: As a board member of a couple of... um Big, big companies like Total Energies and MetLife. I want to ask you about that a little bit. First of all, Total Energies, a giant French oil company. What is the road forward for that company? What do you see them well, doing? Well, it's interesting.
2: At Total, we have taken a different tack than the two super majors in the United States, uh, ExxonMobil and, and Chevron, in that we have placed a much greater emphasis on an evolving industry. Uh, Energy strategy toward renewables. Uh, Total is a very big company. We can't do that overnight, but we've been incredibly intentional and incredibly serious uh, about it. Uh, we are in France, so it is a different operating environment than being in the United States. But honestly, I think that is a plus. You get to see much more of the political economy of the in, of the energy transition up close and personal.
1: And baguettes at the board meeting, perhaps, or something like
2: that. Maybe even a little better. Right, okay. I, bet, <laughs> yeah. I bet, actually. Board food in Paris is a lot better yeah. than in New York. All right,
1: so you're the board chair of MetLife.
2: <laughs> and I still haven't pulled off lunch, as well as in Paris. <laughs> so, <okay. laughs>
1: so what happens at MetLife? What's what's the, the mandate there? Well,
2: MetLife, obviously, we're a very old company, 1868. We are in the individual protection business. Our goal is to protect uh, households. Um, all over the world. Uh, I think the company has a, an incredible purpose and an incredible mission. It's done very, very well for itself by focusing on particular markets. You know, In the United States, we're only in the group market. We don't sell individual policies uh, anymore. Uh, overseas, we're in a number of different markets. Uh, and I think we have a very imaginative strategy as a firm. Insurance is a difficult business always particularly in an environment where rates were so low for so long, now it's a bit better with rates being up, but it's a, it's a great company.
1: And final question, Glenn, you've done a, a great deal of work on poverty and healthcare, and I'm just wondering what your ideas are in terms of society, Addressing those problems, kind of not small questions here. No, Um, it's not. But 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 and what's possible? What can be done? What's possible? What should be done? Well, here's
2: what's frustrating, Andy. We're spending the money, so the question is not can this society afford to have quality health care for every person here. We absolutely can. The question is how to do it, and to my mind, by doing it in such a patchwork quilt where we have. Medicare for older Americans. We have Medicaid for less well-off among us. We have a a private insurance system that goes through your employer, like you or I probably have. We have some people who buy insurance on an individual market. We could replace that with a uniform subsidy uh, that says basically every American is going to have enough to have a basic catastrophic healthcare plan If you're low income, we'll help you do more than that. We'll give you money to build balances for deductibles and so on. And if you're a middle or upper income person, you're on your own. If you want to get more than that, we can absolutely afford that as a society without spending more than we're spending now. Is that radical? Yes. Do we need to do it? Yes. Will we get there? I still think yes, because the alternatives are too expensive.
1: All right. Glenn Hubbard, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This is At Barons. I'm Andy Serwer. We'll catch you next time. The production team for At Barons is Elias Esmalido, Rebecca Bisdale, Kinga Roijak, Joe Lusby, and Laura Salaberry. The executive producers are Kristen Belstrom and Melissa Haggerty. We'll be back with a new episode next week.
0: This podcast is supported by Apollo Global Management. By providing companies with access to flexible financing solutions and partnering with management teams, Apollo is there every step of the way to drive positive outcomes for businesses and power economic growth. Learn more at Apollo.com.